Amen. All of God's people said, praise the Lord. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, team. Not long ago, I read about a, a fast-growing profession uh, as church critics. No, no, I don't mean critical people in the church. I, I don't mean that at all. It is, I mean a profession, paid profession, just like there is a, a book critic and a restaurant critic and a movie critic. Now there is a church critic. As a profession, the very first paid church critic in the United States was a man by the name of the Reverend George Exo. In fact, his reviews were being broadcast on some radio stations in Pittsburgh and several other cities. He rates the church or churches up to five stars, just like hotels, I guess. Five star churches. Now, of course, I was curious once I started reading. I said, I've got to find out who gets five stars. I mean, this is really important to me. Um, by the way, uh, preaching of the gospel truth is not on the list of the ratings. It's not. Um, neither is the necessity of salvation through Christ alone. It was not on the list. But churches that get five stars are churches that are innovative uh, flexible and friendly. And oh, the very highest on the list, the most important, the church rating system is reserved for churches that fill social and emotional needs. Now, while this is really a novice idea for the 21st century, but it's not a, it's as old as the Bible is as old as the Bible. From the very beginning of time, there are people who wanted a God who suits them. They wanted a God who matches uh, their uh, preconceived ideas of Him. They want a God who likes what they like and believes what they believe. They wanted a God who operates on the basis of their feelings and functions like a bellhop. And that is why most surveys show around the United States of America, 90% of people believe in God. 90%. But then when you start digging deeper, you'll find the number really goes down considerably. If you begin to ask questions such as, uh, is this the God of the Bible? Is this the God uh, whose ways are not our ways? Is this the God whose thoughts are not our thoughts? Is this the God who created the universe and created us? Is this the God who is absolute sovereign over the world, over the universe? Is that the God who loved humanity so much that He sent His Son from heaven to come and die for our sins? Uh, and one day, He's going to be sitting on the judge's bench, and He's going to judge every single human being on the face of the earth? Ah, the numbers change considerably. I don't want to depress you and tell you how much. Quite a while back, uh, a friend of mine told me this story about the church, one of those staid churches that are very traditional and, and nothing changed in 60 years. And then a young evangelical pastor came in and he began to preach the Word of God. And, and then one of those old timers came up to him 
And he said to him, and I'm going to quote here, he said, Reverend, if God were alive today, he would be shocked at the changes that you're making in this church. But before you blame this guy, in reality is, this is the attitude of so many professing Christians. They are like the little boy who was drawing a picture, and his father said to him, he said, what are you doing, son? He said, I'm drawing a picture of God. He said, son, nobody knows what God looked like. God is spirit. How can you, how, how can you say that? He said, well, they will know in a few minutes. <laughs> My beloved friends, this is the attitude of the people the Jewish people who lived in Rome, to whom the Apostle Paul is writing. By the way, if you're visiting, you really are here in the middle of the movie, <laughs> because we have been going through a series from the Epistle to the Romans in honor of the Reformation. And I'm actually going to be preaching, except for Easter, I'm going to be preaching through Romans so I can get it under six months. But I want to tell you that the very last verse of chapter 9 Follow with me in the Scripture, in your, in your own Bibles, please. The very last verse, verse 33, which was sung this morning, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble, a rock that makes them fall, but the one who trusts in Him will never be put to shame. This is the very core of the Christian faith. This is the very heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and this is the very foundational stone of the entire chapter, Romans chapter 9. Now, in the last message, those of you who are here, you remember, we ended up on a very high note in Romans chapter 8. I mean, who can deny that this is the pinnacle? Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God through Christ Jesus our Lord. It's like a friend of mine this week emailed me, and he said, you went up to the top of Mount Everest. I said, yes, now I've got to climb down, and I hope you're going to climb down with me. Amen? Because 9, 10, and 11 is really a steep climb down. <laughs> but you will be blessed, and you will rejoice because of the promises in that chapter. Here, the Apostle Paul, after he reached that pinnacle, after he reached the top of the mountain, nothing shall separate us from the love of God through, of, through Jesus Christ. And then he begins to think, his fellow Jews, his kinsmen, they're rejecting the Messiah, their Messiah. And he begins to be climbing down that mountain with a very heavy heart. In reality, the more Paul thought about them and their rejection of their Messiah and the fact that they will be judged in etern for eternity, the more he thought about it, the more he got depressed. And you can see it and hear it in his language, especially if you read it in the original. I know some of you will identify with what I'm going to say. Listen carefully. Here's a godly person who comes to the Lord and is so excited about his or her salvation and is so excited about the forgiveness of their sins and that they're eternally saved and on their way to heaven. 
And then they begin to think they have a father or a mother, a brother or sister, a, a, a dear friend, a son or daughter who have rejected Jesus. Think about this with me. I know some of you are there. I know you. Some of you are here in that point. You have deep love for them, your dear ones. And you feel deep, deep longing in your heart for them to repent and turn to the Lord and be eternally saved. So you would say, I will do anything. I'll give anything for them to come to know the Lord and experience the joy of salvation. Am I saying the truth? I mean, you are bewildered, you are, you are perplexed, you, you, are, you are earnestly praying, and you are looking for every opportunity for them to respond to the gospel. You even try to bring them to church to hear the gospel message. And here the Apostle Paul goes to the very extreme. He's not saying, I do anything, I give anything. No, 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 he's going even further. This is an extreme, beloved. Listen to me. This is an extreme. Just think about this. Think of how salvation means to the Apostle Paul. It means everything to him. And yet he said, even my salvation from eternal hell, which means everything to me, I'm willing to give it up and suffer in torment of hell for eternity if that would help my fellow Jews come to their Messiah. Think about that. That, my beloved, true love, this is very deep, deep longing. This is not sacrificing a few dollars or a few hours. This is willingness to sacrifice eternity. Mind you, Paul knows that this is not even a possibility. He knows that. Uh, that he, I mean, he, he understands that. But at least he expresses this deep anguish over the rejection of their Messiah. And yet today we have false preachers who are saying Jews don't have to believe in Jesus to be saved. The old covenant is fine. They must know something that the great apostle Paul did not know. He knows something that all the great Messianic friends that I have do not know who are as longing in their hearts for their fellow Jews to come to know the Messiah as Paul was. But what makes things worse for Paul <clears throat> is that so many of these Jewish leaders in Rome particularly, those heads of the synagogue, those, those the people in leadership in the, in the Jewish community, they were falsely accusing him of disloyalty, of being a traitor to Judaism. They're falsely accusing him of that. And Paul is saying, far from being a traitor, I am willing even to suffer eternal hell itself if that would help see them come to the truth as it is only in Jesus. I want you to imagine that anguish, particularly in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 9. I want you to imagine it this way. I'm getting, getting ready to explain something or tell you something that some families in this church are going through, and, and I tell you, it breaks my heart. Here's a godly couple who brought up their child to know the Lord. They instructed their child in the Word of God. They trained the child the way of righteousness. 
They daily prayed for their child. But then that child, as soon as he reaches adulthood, rejects Jesus. I want you to imagine the pain and the agony. I don't have to imagine it because I know. The heartache on the part of the parents. Let me just stop here for a minute because I want to say something that's personal. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to explain, explain to you what I mean. This is my personal opinion. I, I don't want you to come and argue with me later or send, letter, send me letters, okay? It's a personal opinion, so take it for what it is. I believe with all my heart that a child of the covenant will not be lost. I'm going to do a whole series, actually, about this because it's so important. Particularly, I'm going to expound on 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I have spent not days or weeks or months, years with that chapter. And I began to understand that when God brings somebody from, the, from a family to himself, he has a plan for the rest of the family. But I'm going to come to that. Maybe, if not this year, it will be next year. But I want you to imagine now, in the midst of that agony, in the midst of that grief, in the midst of their sorrow, they would cry out, there's nothing we wouldn't do. There's nothing we wouldn't give for our child to come back to the Lord. Uh, but then they meet some of Job's comforters. You know what I mean by Job's comforters? Do you, do you have some? I, I have some. I'm blessed by many of Job's comforters. <laughs> you can understand that. I think every pastor has few of those in their church. Job's comforters. And if you don't know, go back and read the, read the book of Job. <laughs> they come to this godly couple, or heartbroken, who are crying to God the best way they know how. They say, you know what the problem is? God is just not fair. You know what the problem is? God doesn't care. You know what the problem is? God is not going to answer your prayer. You can do without them, can't you? Yeah, I was expecting you to say amen. Here's where Paul dedicates the rest of chapter 9. This is from 6 to 33. He dedicates the rest of this chapter in answering Job's comforters, these critics, these professional church critics, those who accuse God of not being fair and not being just. And I have four things, four things. Normally I give you three, three points in a poem, but I don't do poems very often, but I'm giving you four today. Okay, write them down if you're taking notes or you write them on your iPad or iPhone. First of all, the promises of the sovereign God will never, never, can you say never? Never fail. This is verses 6 to 13. Secondly, the character of the sovereign God is that he is more than fair and just. Verses 14 to 18. Thirdly, the sovereign God is not answerable to us. Verses 19 to 29. I'm going to come to each one of those. Fourthly, the sovereign God had Jesus in mind 
all along, since before creation, he had Jesus in mind. Now, let's look at these four very quickly. First of all, the promises of God, the promises of the sovereign God, they will never fail. They will never fail. To be sure, the people of Israel were favored by God. Make no mistake about it. In fact, he enumerates them in, this, in verses 4 and 5. He, he, he shows those favors. Seven of them all together, if, you, if you're counting, they're the physical descendants of Abraham. They're adopted by God. They entered into a covenant with God. They received the law. They had a temple to worship in. They were given promises of the Messiah, and there had the patriarchs through whom Jesus physically descended. I mean, amazing privileges, just like the privileges of a child of a covenant in the Christian church who grow up to know Jesus, to hear about Jesus, to be instructed about Jesus, to know the righteousness of God, and to know the Word of God. These are privileges that some people throw away, but only for a time. How can a child of privilege become a child of prejudice? How can a child of blessing can be a child of blasphemy? Paul said, it is not because God has failed to keep His promises. No, and a million knows. Then what? Verse 6, for not all who are descendant of Israel are true Israel. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. A lot of people do. A lot of ignoramus uh, stuff going around, particularly on television. Because this is a very crucial verse. And many people try to skirt it. They, they, they go over, they gloss over it. <laughs> now, here's what Paul is saying, that it is from the beginning there's always been two Israels. How many? Two Israels. <laughs> And then he goes on to explain what he was talking about, illustrates it. One is the physical descendants of Israel, and if you remember from the last series on Jacob, that's Jacob. Jacob is Israel. Those who are physically descended from him, and those, the Israel that believed by faith just like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did. What's Paul saying? He's saying all of God's promises were not for the nominal Israel, but for the spiritual Israel. Just as salvation is not for the nominal Christians, but for the believing Christians. Are you with me? Have I lost you? Good. God's promises have always been and always will be for the faithful remnant within Israel. You have to understand the Scripture that way. God's promises is for the faithful remnant within the church, not these churches. Do you remember back, all the way back to chapter 228 when I was expounding on, on that chapter? You remember? What did I say? You remember what I said? Paul is distinguishing between those who are physically circumcised and those who are spiritually circumcised, not outwardly, but inwardly in their heart. He made that distinction early, early, early in the piece in the book of Romans, in the epistle to the Romans. And then here he comes and says, I want to prove that to you. I'm going to prove my point of distinguishing between the, the nominal Jews and the faithful believing Jews, and there are two separate people. Because those who believe like Abraham, 
are the true descendants of Abraham. Can I get an amen? amen? And then he illustrates it. He illustrates it from the Scripture, from the Old Testament. He says, Abraham had two sons, right? Um, Isaac and Ishmael. Although he had more kids from Keturah, whom he married after Sarah died, but those are the two who are the Scripture focuses on. Isaac is the spiritual heir, not Ishmael. Not Ishmael. Isaac. Isaac. Why? Because Isaac was the son of promise. The same thing happened to Isaac himself. He had two sons. Jacob and Esau. Both were his children. Uh, Both were as bad as each other. (laughs) Both were born within minutes of each other. Both had the same father and the same mother, but Jacob was the spiritual heir and not Esau. Paul uses the same argument here. Listen to me. Please hear me right. There's something here in verse 13, and if you have your Bible, underline it, verse 13, because it requires an explanation. A lot of people stumble over this word hate. Did you get that, the word hate? When it says, I loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. I want to explain that. It's very important, very important. In reality, there is no English equivalence to that word that is in the original. In the Hebrew speech, it's called hyperbole, hyperbole. It's like when Jesus said, listen carefully to what Jesus said in Luke 14, 26, unless you hate your father and mother, you're not worthy of me. And we said, oh, wait a minute, Michael, this is the God of love who went to the cross, out of love, is now talking about hate? Chill out, because I'm going to explain it to you, okay? Because that is not what it means. The best way I can translate it for you, the best way I'd explain it to you, is that he's saying, you must place your salvation ahead of your loved ones, ahead of everything in life. If you really want to receive my salvation, it has to be your number one passion. It's the number one desire. It's the number one longing in your heart. It has to be the huge priority over and above all relationships. Salvation uh, has to be an overriding passion of yours. That's what he's saying. He doesn't mean, or it doesn't really mean at all, that you have to hate your father and mother. How can you do that when he said, honor your father and mother? Are you with me? Esau and Jacob had the same parents. Yes. But in his foreknowledge, God knew that Esau is going to uh, disrespect and dishonor in hardening of his heart He is disrespecting, dishonoring his birthright, and he doesn't take it seriously. In fact, he sells it out on eBay for a bowl of soup. In the same way, the promise of God to Israel didn't fail. The promise of God to Israel never failed. You have to understand, it was a promise for those spiritual Israel. Why? Because all along, God's promises were intended for the faithful remnant within Israel. 
Those who are truly the descendants of Abraham are those who have the faith of Abraham, not necessarily the race of Abraham. Now, don't shoot the messenger. I'm only telling you what the Scripture said, because I can read your minds. Some of you are already balking. Am I right? Yeah? Okay. Thank you for your honesty. All of the thousands of Jewish people in the first century who recognized Jesus as the fulfillment of the promises in the Old Testament, and they received Him as their Messiah, as their Savior, and as their Lord, all of them were saved. The promise of the sovereign God will never fail. Secondly, the character of the sovereign God is more than fair. He is more than just. 14 and all the way to 18. Now that we understand God's promises never fail, but rather they are fulfilled, they are fulfilled in the spiritual descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then why these Jewish leaders are falsely accusing the Apostle Paul of being a traitor to Judaism. Listen carefully. The objections that they have and the objections that they're raising that Paul is answering here in this chapter is, is it fair of God to choose Isaac over Ishmael? I hear the same argument today. Is it fair on God's part to choose Jacob over Esau? Paul says, you are asking the wrong question. (laughs) You're asking the wrong question. The question is not whether God is fair. The question is, does God have mercy at all? Verse 15, the sovereign God says, I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. The question of the critics is ill-conceived question. When it comes to God's salvation, forget about man's logic. God operates on His own set of logic, because if God exercises justice, none of us will make it. None of us. We are up the creek without a paddle. If God exercises justice with me, I'm up to my eyeballs and alligators. And beloved, let me confess to you, I've never, ever, 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 in the 52 years, 54 years now almost, walking with Christ, I've never prayed for justice for me. I prayed it for others. (laughs) Man, I got a list of people I want God to suck it to them. (laughs) And so do you, except I'm just confessing it. Praying for justice will be only foolish. Only a fool prays for justice. And I can tell you, my mama never raised a fool. Forget about it. I am pleading for mercy. Not justice. That's what I plead with God for mercy. Beloved, God owes us nothing except judgment. That bellhop God that is preached in many a church today has no resemblance to Yahweh, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 17. It was when Pharaoh hardened his own heart, God said, hey, I'll give you more of what you want. (laughs) I'll harden it even further. Read about it in Genesis. And that is why it is only through prayer and fasting that God will take a hard heart and softens it. I've seen it. I've experienced it. 
People that you would never have thought would come to Christ came to Christ because somebody prayed and fasted and never gave up in prayer. My beloved, we must plead for God's mercy on behalf of the hard-hearted. We must never cease to plead His mercy. We need to implore the God of grace that He may have mercy on them. The promises of God, the promises of the sovereign God will never fail. Secondly, the character of the sovereign God is He's very fair. He's just. Thirdly, the sovereign God is not answerable to us. Look at verses 19 to 29. Here comes the next critic, the question of the next critic. If God is going to have mercy upon whom He's going to have mercy, why even pray? Goodness gracious, I'll save a lot of time. Why witness? Why get attacked by my co-workers and for trying to live my Christian life and witness to them about Christ? Well, if He's going to do that, just forget it, right? Have you heard that? Oh, I'm glad Paul answered that question, not me. If it was left up to me, I'd have messed it up. But here in verses 19 to 29, he's saying, if you're asking God to respond to the fallacial demand that God is answerable to us, then you're compounding the problem. You're compounding the problem. Here's a Yusuf translation. Don't try to look for it in any of the translations of the Bible. It's a Yusuf translation. Paul is saying, chill out for a minute and think of your pathetic knowledge of God. (laughs) You know, I don't know, all these years I'm walking with Christ, all these years I've read through the Scripture every year, I feel like a little boy playing in the sand. I haven't even got my feet wet yet. God's knowledge, way, 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 way beyond our ability to comprehend. In verses 20 to 21, have you ever seen a piece of clay that was made into a mug? Looking at the potter says, hey, I don't like that. You should have made me a beautiful vase. Oh, vase, excuse me. <laughs> My old nature comes out every now and again. Beloved, listen to me, listen to me. In His graciousness, God allows us as His children to ask why. And listen to me, there is nothing wrong with asking why. Nothing wrong with that. And that's not what he's talking about. The problem arises when we demand that God gives us an answer. Demand that God be answerable to us. Listen, I know because we live in democratic society, and I hope it stays democratic, I don't know how long, with all those forces of smothering speech, especially certain kind of speech that has to do with this conservative voices or biblical voices. But because we have this democratic culture and society, and I thank God for it, I longed for it as a boy, and I'm, I give thanks to God every day that I'm here. There's nothing wrong with that. But because of that, We feel that we elected officials to office, and if they don't do what we ask them to do, we can vote them out. Here's the problem, my beloved friends. Listen to me. Because many people in the church 
think and believe that they voted for God. Hello. I talked about this last message. They think they voted for God. They're going to hold them accountable. And that is false teaching. And that false teaching I alluded to in the last message, I don't care what they call it. They call it free will. They call it this. They call it the other thing. They actually saying, I voted for God. I chose God. He did not choose me. I am the one. It's up to me to walk with God. i got news for you. If it's up to me to walk with God, I would have been lost a long time ago. Oh, my goodness. We decided. We chose him. And we are Americans. We're the center of the universe. Hello? Hello? Am I stepping on some toes? We're the center of the universe. No, you're not. God is. God is. God is the center of the universe. Amen. Give him praise. May God have mercy on every person who falls in that satanic mindset. Beloved, I heard with those ears, I've heard with those ears, preachers who are trying to downsize God. (laughs) They want to bring him down to a wallet size. Preachers want to hold God accountable. The way I think about it is just Think about it from a human relationship. Parents who have given everything, have done everything for their children, only when their children reach adulthood, they have no gratitude, no thankfulness. Or an employer who gives a job to an employee who desperately needed it, and then that employee turns his back and betrays his employer. Think about this, how devastating it is from a human relationship point of view. How much more from God's point of view. Think how dreadful this is to disrespect and disappoint the loving God. take all of the common graces from His hand. We take all of the blessings from His hands. We take all of the unseen and untold mercies from His hands. And then we have the temerity. When things go wrong on the, or some blip screen in our life and, and we get mad at God. Now, please, 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 please don't misunderstand me. I, 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 Paul is not talking about a sincere believer, and I've been there many times, a sincere believer who occasionally feels perplexed by his situation or her situation, feels perplexed about the circumstances, and they're coming to the Lord and ask, Lord, do something. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about those who have no respect for God whatsoever and treat him like the bellhop. Beloved, Paul is saying that we must let God be God. And if He is indeed the sovereign God, He will always make perfect sense to Himself. And we will understand it one day. If not in this life, it will be at eternity, but we will understand it one day. Now, for those of us who get angry with God sometimes because of sin and 
dreadful sinners. And I already told you I do that. But I want to tell you, Paul has a word for us here. He's saying, be very patient. Be very patient. For God's judgment of sin and sinners is on its way and is going to be absolutely spectacular. And because of this judgment is going to be so severe, you don't want to be anywhere near the people who are going to be judged. Because God is he who is who he is. Because God is he who he is. He does what he does, when he does it, and how he does it. Here in this passage in Romans chapter 9, Paul is quoting from the Old Testament, which is Paul's Bible at the time, saying the Gentiles will come to God through faith, and they will become his people. But his own, just like John said in John chapter 1, his own received him not. They will not be his people on that dreadful day. Far, 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 far from being a traitor to Judaism, Paul is only proclaiming what the Old Testament prophets have prophesied about the Messiah. The fact they did not want to accept him is not God's problem, it's their problem. He is indeed longing for them to stop hardening of their hearts and come to Christ. Listen to what Jesus himself said, okay? Because you say, that's Paul. Well, Paul learned everything from Jesus. Okay, Matthew 8, 11. Here's what Jesus said. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west. That is always a reference to Gentiles, the east and the west. Those who are far away. Many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom, that's the Jewish people, the covenant people, they will be thrown outside. In their spiritual blindness and their self-centeredness and self-righteousness, they'll become angry at the fact that heaven's entrance is only possible through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The promises of the sovereign God will never fail. The character of the sovereign God is more than fair and just. The sovereign God is not answerable to us. Finally, the God the Father had God the Son in mind all the way, even before the creation, but certainly we see the beginning of it in Genesis 3.15. He had Jesus in mind all the time. They just couldn't see it. They didn't want to see it. You know those last four verses? Are you looking at them? Look at the last four verses. 30, 31, 32, 33. You see them in the Bible? I'm going to give you a word picture that describes those verses. Are you ready? I lost some of you, I can tell. Here's a word picture. Two men standing at the bottom of Stone Mountain. Now, all of those who are watching around the world online right now, they don't know what Stone Mountain is, Google it. <laughs> Just with Stone Mountain, Georgia. You'll get it. Two people at the bottom of Stone Mountain, Georgia. One takes the cable car 
and goes all the way to the top of that rock, and there he's resting, relaxing, and basking in the sunshine. The other one is down there at the bottom of that rock, trying to climb up with his fingernails. Are you with me? This is a word picture of what Paul is trying to say in those four verses. Every person, whether a Jew or a Gentile, has to decide whether they will be hoisted up by the power of the Holy Spirit and rest completely on the rock of Zion, the rock of ages, the Lord Jesus Christ, or they want to spend their days trying to kick at the rock and and kick at the rock and, and then trying to climb that rock with their fingernails. You can only imagine the results, the consequences. If you decide that you'll do it your way and try to climb the rock with your fingernails, I plead with you. I plead with you. The reason I'm broken is because I don't want anyone to suffer for eternity. Not at the sound of my voice anyway. That's what I'm responsible for. I plead with you. Don't climb on your fingernails. You're going to be crushed by the rock. Come on the cable car. The Holy Spirit of God, let Him lift you up, hoist you up, and take you to the Lord Jesus, the rock of ages. And there you're going to find peace, joy, and above all, eternal life with Jesus. I want to tell you this as I conclude. Something I've given a lot of thought to through the years. I really have many, many years. Why do people, or some people at least, stumble over Jesus, the rock of ages? Why do they stumble over him? (laughs) The one who hung helplessly while he created the world, and yet he hung helplessly on the cross to redeem you. Why do they stumble on that rock? I came to final conclusions through the years. They want to climb that mountain with their fingernails. I'm going to be good. I'm going to try to do good. You know, there's nothing wrong with me. All of that. These fingernails of personal pride, whether it be pride of ethnic heritage or pride of religious heritage or pride of theological heritage or There's fingernails of pride, of self-importance. I can do it. But my beloved friends, until you put aside your pride, until you put aside your pride and allow God's cable car, the Holy Spirit, to just lift you up, Judgment will overshadow you, not only in this life, but forever. I'm gonna, I want to catch my breath, so I'm going to ask you to bow your heads in prayer.
I'm going to ask while every head is bowed and every eye is closed, if there'll be a person here today who say, Michael, I do want that cable card. I want the, I'm tired of climbing on my fingernails. I know I'm not good enough for God, but God is inviting me today, and I want to accept that invitation. Would you just raise your hand up in the air? I'm not going to ask you to stand up or come forward. Just raise your hand up, and I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray with you. Yes, I can see. I can see the hands. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else? And I'll pray with you and for you. Say yes. I, I, I don't want to make it. I can't make it on my own. I, I, I want his cable car. I want his Holy Spirit to lift me up so I can receive forgiveness at his hands. I'm tired of living this life. I can see those hands in the balcony. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Father God, If you are not who you are, and we believe every word you have spoken, we have just come here and wasted an hour and a half of our time. But Lord, we have seen it in our own lives, and we've seen it in history again and again, how you've responded to the simplest of prayers. And all of you lifted your heart. You can say those words with me, not aloud, just to yourself. Jesus, save me. Forgive me. I repent. I turn to you. Come into my life. Let your Holy Spirit dwell in me. And so, Father, I thank you for these individuals and Maybe others who are watching around the world, you're the searcher of the heart. You know the secrets of our hearts. We trust you completely. Send your Holy Spirit. Help us as a team here that we come around them and that we will help them and encourage them as they walk with you. And Father, for all my brothers and sisters whose faith weakens times when they see things that doesn't make sense, I pray for your strength, for your power, particularly as the day gets darker, Lord. I pray, give us your strength so we keep on trusting you no matter what happens, no matter what goes on, no matter who says what, that we know you're a sovereign God, and soon you're coming back, and you're going to reign and rule, and we're going to reign and rule with you. Lift up our eyes. Lift, elevate our vision for Jesus' sake. Amen, and amen, and amen. We stand and sing with us.